Good evening, um, everybody, um, and welcome to the LSE, those of you who've come from outside the LSE. My name's John Hills. I'm from the Department of Social Policy here at LSE and from our Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion. Um, like many of you in the audience, I suspect, not all, actually, looking at um, the age range, um, I first came across um, Will through his column in the Guardian newspaper, um, a column which was the inspiration for, and I think contributed a lot to, his hugely successful uh, 1995 book, The State We're In, um, which was a bestseller. Um, it may be that you knew him, you came, first came across him as editor-in-chief of the Observer newspaper, um, or through his continuing the columns he continues to write um, each week. Or you might have come across um, his, him through his um, fairly recent book on China, um, the writing on the wall, or on inequality, them and us, or as chief executive of the Work Foundation, or now as chair of the Big Innovation Centre, or possibly even as principal of Hartford College, Oxford. Um, now, I list all of those not just to emphasise Will's glittering career, but also to give a partial explanation of how he's been able to write the book that he's introducing, indeed launching, tonight. And I say tonight advisedly because this book is published at midnight, I think, so you are getting um, a sneak preview of this and the copies um, on sale are therefore effectively advanced copies. Um, his scope is huge in this book. He talks about the Constitution. He talks about financial markets and company structure and the effects and the causes of the crisis. He talks about innovation and technical, technological change. He talks about the media, he talks about inequality, and he talks about the nature of work, all of which have been themes through his career. So I think there are a few other people who could and possibly would have dared to um, write with such a scope. Um, now, I should say that um, it would be very good if you have got a mobile phone. Um, if you are going to tweet, please could you turn it to silent, um, if you are going to tweet, please use the hashtag, uh, hashtag LSEGood. If you think that the LSE is good, please fill in the National Student Survey, that, but do that separately. Um, but otherwise, please do put your phones on silent um, or off. Uh, this evening's event is being recorded, and um, as long as the quality works out, um, it will be um, made more widely available to an international audience. <laughs> Will is going to talk for 30 to 40 minutes about what's in, in the book. Um, but, um, and after that, there'll be an opportunity for you all to put um, questions to him. Um, and then after that, um, when we stop, um, Will will be signing copies of the book up here. Um, and I think, I think, you're, I think you're, they'll bring them up here. They're, they're on sale outside, but they'll be brought up here for the signing. Um, but there's also going to be a reception outside in the atrium, which is just round to the left. Um, so, um, could you all um, join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Will Hutton, the author of How Good We Can Be, Ending the Mercenary Society and Building a Great Country. Um, thank you very much indeed. It was uh, 20 years ago, uh, not today, but nearly today, that I launched um, The State We're In. 
And uh, uh, actually, very early on, I spoke at the LSE, and it's great to be, 20, to be kind of back 20 years on. Actually, I have had one or two kind of uh, other appearances here in the 20 years since 1995. Um, of course, the kind is richer than it was um, 20 years ago. Um, I didn't anticipate the Internet. I didn't anticipate um, uh, quite as much uh, kind of transformation. Um, uh, but some of the things I was worried about 20 years ago um, are even more marked now. In fact, when I look at The State We're In, which was quite a popular book, I mean, it was one of the best-selling economics books since 1945, um, second best-selling economics book since 1945, um, and, you know, a lot of things I, I – when I kind of look at some of the things that I, uh, I'm concerned about now, I feel a bit like, uh, you know, Mary and Little Lamb, really. I was kind of – it was meant to be a big, radical book from this man of the centre-left setting out kind of a vision of stakeholder capitalism and a kind of new vision for Britain. And I was worried about um, – and I thought it was dreadful that there had been one million council house sales and not replaced. And, uh, you know, here we are uh, now. Five million is the cumulative total. Uh, I was really worried about inequality and the levels of executive pay, which I thought was an astonishing 60 times um, uh, median pay. I mean, now, 140 times. And every polarity uh, on which you look, I, was, I coined this notion of the 30, 30, 40 as a society, and I was very worried about the growth of temporary work. I never anticipated 1.4 million zero-hour contracts, 1.7 million agency workers. I was concerned about too much takeover. I was concerned about the financialization of our companies. I was concerned about the, the, the inequalities over and above income and wealth inequality in our country. And I, I was really thought, I thought the financial system was running amok and it would, it would end in tears. I never anticipated um, the banking system could virtually collapse. I, I thought there were, that the degree of centralization of the polity was um, going to lead to all kinds of tensions, but I could never have believed that actually our country uh, could have got so close to the secession of Scotland as uh, it got. Uh, if you read the opening paragraphs, I also kind of do a little requiem for um, Britain's great power status, but I still thought the armed services were pretty damn good. And we've, I mean, whatever you may think, and I think we probably, most people in this room will share the view that the uh, interventions in, a, in, in Iraq certainly uh, were not legitimate, and Afghanistan was a monumental waste of £40 billion. Uh, but I mean, the bigger point is that there were, it's the military reverses in both places. You know, we, we actually didn't win. Uh, in either. We were bailed out in Basra by the Americans, and uh, we started off in Helmand with 700 paratroopers, ultimately bailed out of that by 25,000 NATO troops. I mean, leave aside the rights and wrongs of it, uh, that isn't, you know, we're used, to, you know, the notion is, you know, we may complain, all of us, about the country, but there's this, in the back of your mind, you carry the view the country's notwithstanding a great power, and actually, militarily, we can do stuff. We can't even do that in 2015. So, I mean, I, I, you know, many of the things that I was concerned about 20 years ago, in my view, are more marked. Um, and uh, we have an astonishing trade deficit. Um, the tax base has dissolved. Um, productivity is um, deeply moderate, well behind where you might expect it to be. And I think there's, you know, you find center-right commentators um, writing about the decline of the middle class, the squeeze of the middle class, uh, as, as much as centre-left co uh, commentators worrying about the um, disintegration of um, the working class. 
uh, the kind of solidarities and neighborhoods and communities uh, kind of have dissolved. You know, we're all living kind of atomistic lives, um, fearful of foreigners. Again, I, I'm, I'm astonished by, I mean, there was a fair amount of Euroscepticism 20 years ago, uh, but it's kind of morphed into uh, a deep distrust of the foreigner, um, a willingness to blame foreigners for our, our, our ills, which again, uh, I suppose, um, am I being romantic? I think that's, I don't recognize um, uh, in a conception of fair-minded Britishness kind of some of the dreadful things that are said about uh, kind of the non-British. Um, I defy anyone, uh, and I, have lots of, I had lots of centre-right critics when I wrote The State We're In, I defy anyone uh, to argue um, that the last 20 years uh, could not have been improved upon uh, at its mildest, um, and actually to, to have lived through, as we have in the last six or seven years, you know, the collapse of the banking system, saved only by one trillion pound intervention, um, the breakup of the country, narrowly avoided and still could happen, and islands that actually separate all around the world don't fare well. I mean, I don't think it would be good for Scotland or for England if the Scots vote for independence, but I understand why that runs so strong in Scotland for Scots members of the audiences. Uh, uh, and the kind of story on inequality. I mean, actually, if you're in your uh, early, late teens, early 20s, you know, the notion of acquiring skills, uh, a profession, building a career over time in organizations that are likely to endure, to, for you to live a life that you have reason to value, to actually start a family, build a, buy a house, all the, buy a flat, all of that is uh, il becoming uh, elusive unless you have the bank of mum and dad behind you. you know, these are not great times for our country. And I, I, um, I, I simply don't believe that the kind of political discourse and now 90 days before a general election, kind of measures to, or measures up to, um, the, pr the profundity uh, kind of, of the crisis confronting the country. Now, having said that, I immediately want to say, and that's why I've called the book, not you know, the selling off of Britain or the vandals within or all kinds of titles I played with, but actually um, how good we can be. Because actually, notwithstanding all these mistakes, uh, there's quite a lot of good on which if the right kind of policy framework and right institutional framework, right incentives were put in place, right governing structures, you know, I think over a 15-year period, the country could become um, the most dynamic um, in Europe. And many of these problems could actually um, uh, slough away quite rapidly. Um, we are... Um, the best adopters kind of, of the internet and digitalization in Europe. There is a newfound entrepreneurialism, fantastic startups. Uh, John mentioned uh, Oxford, where I, uh, I, I lead uh, or work in Hartford College. The greatest number of life science startups you know, outside the United States is actually in a 25-mile travel-to-work area of Oxford. Uh, Cambridge has its comparable strengths. London has those strengths times 10. Uh, just what's happening um, up around King's Cross is extraordinary. Um, it would be wrong to kind of just say, you know, the places are kind of a wasteland. 
There are great companies. Many multinationals have their headquarters here, although that's threatened by potentially leaving the European Union. Fabulous universities, of which this is one. Uh, London University, and taken in its entirety, you know, obviously stronger than Oxford and Cambridge, and I speak as a representative of Oxford. So, you know, there's a lot to build on, a lot to build on. But actually, uh, and if, you're a, if you are a member of the centre-right consensus, believing in the, you know, the Conservatives' long-term economic plan, which they parrot every time they get to the microphone, you say, what Will Hutton has said is evidence that actually we don't want to stick to it. The overweening priority is to reduce the deficit. Everything else uh, must be consecrated to that end. Uh, to which uh, I would argue, really, uh, is it that good? Uh, of all the, thing, how, how the things I said in my opening remarks not happened? And I think it's all the more kind of um, elusive because I do think that we are living... And here I just want to carry on with this optimistic note before I try and set out what I think we can do. I do think that um, it's worth saying... Um, what a kind of moment of possibility this is, and not just for Britain, but actually you know, for um, all industrial societies, advanced industrial societies. General purpose technologies are technologies that change the world, the transformative technologies that actually have applications well beyond the area um, in which they're developed, and the multiple spillover effects generate wealth and productivity, change uh, the possibilities of, of life. The computer is obviously one of them, not just a communications kind of tool, but, you know, transformative impact of digitalization that's driven by that. Robotization is another. The aeroplane in its time was another. The three-masted sailing ship in its time was another. The railway in its time was another. There were eight of these great technologies, nine if you, if you, if you, want, if you want to include the kind of lean production uh, in the 20th century. In the 21st century, we're expecting the theorists and innovation that to be doubled. So there'll be more of these transformative technologies um, in the next 100 years than in the last 500. Uh, kind of looking around the audience at some of the kind of young people here, you know, you're going to live through more change cumulative than you know, has been lived through by anybody at any time in history. It's phenomenal, wonderful, it's so exciting. And you can see that, actually, in the way the economic base is changing. In 2000, the investment in what economists call intangibles, broadly know-how, computer code, uh, copyright, patents, all of kind of the intangible kind of assets, surpassed tangible asset, assets for the first time ever. So the people are investing kind of more in know-how than they were in factories and, and, and bricks and mortar. That run rate of investment now is only twice intangibles than it is intangibles. That's why you know, the apps on your mobile or the smart things that you can do um, on your kind of new intelligent meter to, conduct to control electricity in your home, that's what's on the dashboard of your car, is actually where the action is. Uh, and it's just going to create kind of transformative poss possibilities. Don't get pessimistic about jobs. I, I'm sure you'll have people up here who will tell you all oh, the, the thinking machine, the learning machine is going to mean that you know, half, 47% on one estimate of all jobs you're currently doing will be eliminated um, in 20 years' time. So there'll only be a world of you know, jobs for very smart people who've been through the LSC and Hartford College, Oxford, and everybody else uh, will be living kind of lives as kind of sole traders, um, agency workers, and the, the middle will just be absolutely nothing happening at all except unemployment. Don't buy it. I mean, there, there'll be jobs in uh, 
lots of face jobs, teaching, caring, mentoring, coaching, all of that. There'll be jobs in, there'll be a new micro-revolution in which there'll be kind of jobs in everything from micro-brewing to micro-electricity production to micro-fashion to micro-production of cars. There'll be digitalization will generate all kinds of jobs. The one thing you can be certain of, and here I share the view of Keynes, one of my kind of heroes, who wrote in the early 30s, saying that, that um, he, he was obviously going to be regarded as mad, but he thought in, in the 1970s that living standards would double and that actually most working men would have cars. He was ridiculed. Um, let me make the same prediction. In 30 years' time, uh, living standards will have doubled, and actually working men and women will have artifacts that um, only the super-rich have access to now. So don't, but the point is is that if to capitalize on this, for it actually to be an era of mass flourishing, because the exam question that um, you want your economic and social structures to answer is, given all that, do we have structures that will allow us, A, to capitalize upon it, and B, create a world in which the mass of us can flourish? And my answer to that question in 2015 is a resounding no. And... Uh, it's not just a question of you know, technology or globalization or all the you know, inadequacies of the education system or all the usual culprits that people point their finger at. I want to point my finger at something much more profound. I want to point my finger at the operation of contemporary capitalism and the way it's been allowed to develop. And I want to point my finger in particular at the company uh, and what we've allowed to happen to the idea and notion of a company. Now, a company comes, derives from the Latin companion group coming together to share risk and uh, adventure, and, uh, and, and uh, that's where the idea of a company comes from, is a kind of potentially uh, companies are kind of organizations of genius, permitting kind of great issues to be solved, people to innovate, great goods and services to be delivered, held to account for poor delivery by the marketplace. And these is not, it's a bloody good idea, the company. But what's happened in the last uh, 30 years, 40 years, is actually degeneracy of the company. Um, and it's all around, all around for anyone who has eyes uh, to see. And I find it particularly kind of galling at the moment, this moment in time when a procession of business leaders climb to the rostrum to, kind of, to kind of proclaim that the business interest, that XYZ politician always on the labor side is anti-business, as if the companies they run are, remain the kind of companies which actually um, could be um, wealth creators and wealth generators of the type they um, want them to be, rather than the degenerate wealth extractors um, that they are in practice. For example, I mean, I know there's not time, but I want to get to give you a chance to question me, and I'm also looking forward to drinking the atrium, like I'm sure you are. Um, but the, um, I mean, just 20, when I wrote The State We're In, uh, it's only 20 years ago, you know, ICI and GEC were two of the biggest companies in Europe. ISGI, the biggest chemical company, ranking alongside BASF, the German chemical company, and GEC, uh, ranking alongside Siemens. Well, BASF is um, <coughs> the biggest chemical company in the world, and Siemens is the biggest engineering company in Europe. ISGI and GEC just don't exist. They're ceased. Uh, there'll be a film on Channel 4 
um, about my book in a couple of weeks' time. You can see me top of a thing called the Hexagon Tower in a rather bleak part of Manchester, which used to be the centre of the ISI R&D division on dye stuffs. And you can look below you for about 10, 12, 14 acres, as far really as the eye can see in the driving rain in Manchester, actually, um, what used to be kind of the, one of the biggest research capabilities you know, in Europe, gone, disappeared. And actually, ICI tried to maximize shareholder value. It tried to wheel and deal its way. Uh, At one stage, it was kind of stalked by Hanson Trust, uh, who was going to break it up, demerge it, and create, unlock shareholder value in exactly the same way that GEC was stalked. Uh, What's happened is that actually they've been dismembered, they're ceased. Uh, to, to kind of echo John Cleese, this parrot no longer is... No, no, they're not even stuck to the bloody kind of barb, dead, because you can't see them. They're physically gone. And yet they're German compatriots um, in a much more different kind of context in which companies kind of are respected, exist, and prosper. I mean, the travails HSBC are going through, Tesco manipulating its... Um, uh, profits by 250 million pounds and being looked at by the ombudsman for the maltreatment of its suppliers. Why is that happening? It's happening because it's deeply dysfunctional and they are actually prioritizing the um, financial priorities, immediate financial priorities, above, um, above um, the interests of the whole company. I think there's a, I, um, I, I'm, um, I'm a great admirer of EDF Energy. It's run by uh, a Frenchman, Vincent de Riva, who I like and respect very much. And they were looking to partner with Centrica to produce the, and, and build the next generation of nuclear power stations. Um, Centrica dropped out of the partnership. Why did Centrica drop out of the partnership? Centrica part- dropped out of the partnership because it said um, a rate of return, a guaranteed rate of return by the British government in our utility of 10.5% for the next 35 years is too low. We want 30.5%, the kind of rate of return you might get from a go-go hedge fund. And they dropped out. And um, tried to find someone to share, to, 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 to share the risk with who was interested in building nuclear power stations. The only partner came, came up with was the Chinese. And the Chinese said, well, we'll take the minority role to build Sizewell and Hinkley. But actually, the quid pro quo for taking the minority role and actually we're looking forward to 10.5% guaranteed over 35 years, we think that's bloody good, is that we want the British government to allow um, the Chinese, uh, us, the the Chinese nuclear power industry, to wholly own, wholly build the next wave of nuclear power stations in Britain with Chinese parts shipped from China. So that 10, 15, 20% of our power will, um, with the next generation, as the two the follow-on from building Sizewell and Hinkley, they'll be built by the Chinese. And there may be occasions when we actually find that actually isn't so clever to have the potential the lights turned off in Britain uh, because of that. Why has that happened? Because Centrica is chasing these astonishing high rate of returns. And as a company had degraded, so it benchmarked itself, not against being a utility, but against something else altogether. Um, look at what happened with the privatization of Royal Mail. And look at the privatization of Thames Water. Thames Water is privatized in 1989 as a public limited company. Um, what's happened kind of 20 years later is that actually we're, it can only build the Tideway Tunnel, the super tunnel, um, the super sewer under the Thames, which is going to cost £4 billion with a government guarantee. Why does the government got to guarantee Thames Water Utility doing this? Because it has £4 billion of debts. Why has it got £4 billion of debts? Because it's distributing dividends. Um, 100% of all its profits are distributed as dividends to a bunch of private equity shareholders in, in Luxembourg who own Thames Water. 
It's not interested particularly in building up a utility for the, so that you actually have fantastic water and all the rest. It's interested in actually um, stripping um, the country of um, cash to a, a, a bunch of international shareholders based in Luxembourg who are there because it's tax efficient. And so in order to build the bloody super sewer, they have to have a state guarantee that's you, the taxpayer, and then um, to pay to service the, um, the loans on the debts, they're going to put water bills by £70 a year. That is how privatization works in practice, which we have to genuflect towards. And here, I'm going to make a prediction in the NSC. I'm, I'm 64, but if I'm still walking and still able to do it, and I invite you back in 20 years' time to write another essay of this type, I can tell you that, uh, as matters stand, Royal Mail will be owned by a bunch of private equity shareholders in some offshore tax haven, and you'll be paying stunning prices for your stamps. There will no longer be a universal postal service, and there'll be centre-right politicians telling us that we should be marvel at the wonderful gains of privatisation and efficiency gains thereby. But it could have been so different. My point about these stories is actually, um, time and time again, what you're reading and you're learning about is actually how these our, our company structures are in de facto ownerless, uniquely um, when a company is privatized, when a comp our public company is quoted on the stock exchange, um, uniquely, there's multiple, multiple shareholders. They have no kind, they don't have anchored shareholders. Um, they have all have the same vote. Some don't vote at all. Um, they have no constitutional obligations to the company that they own. They have the right to sell these shares kind of in the markets whenever they choose, instantaneously. Um, most of the ownership is now, nearly half of it, <coughs> is now owned abroad or by global asset managers. And uh, um, if it's the United States, a great proportion of your equity is owned by the employees. And actually, um, there, are, there are instruments available to directors if they think a takeover bid is unwelcome. They can say no. Um, Germans have cross-shareholdings. Um, the Japanese have big insurance companies and banks. Um, the um, Nordics have um, big industrial and business trusts. You know, all around the world, where you look to see um, corporate success, you find that um, they don't have the kind of ownership structure and the way that actually it's done in the UK. The average time a share is, is held is less than six months. You know, um, 70% of the equity that's traded is done by hedge funds and insurance companies. They, uh, hedge funds and, and, um, and uh, day, day traders and all the rest. They hold shares for an average less than 20 seconds. And what this does is it drives the financial priority, their financial priority, it makes the share price the god, the alpha and omega, the thing that everyone has to look at and organize the company around. Why that, that list of degraded behaviors I've described um, has actually happened is you cannot begin to explain it. It's that necessary but insufficient condition for the explanation is that ownership structure. And that cascades into the patterns of reward in our society. Of course, executive reward um, has gone up, so that for every pound of turnover, British executives are the best paid in the world. Ha! Huh. Um, the, uh, we, um, it's not so much conspicuous consumption, but conspicuous earning. Um, I was asked by the government, uh, the incoming government, Osborne and Cameron, to look at executive pay, fair pay in the public sector, and implications might have for the private sector. And actually, the amounts of, you know, I mean, executive pay has gone up four times in 25 years. Has productivity, innovation, performance gone up by four times in 25 years? 
And what's happened, of course, is that remuneration has been keyed into share price performance and shares have been given away to, to allegedly incentivize um, director teams. And what, they, what, what becomes the, the kind of impulse is to, is to drive the company forward in ways that, that buoy the share price up. And that leads into the ways that they employ people. It's no accident that, that kind of UK Sport Direct, uh, employing 22,000 people, you know, has 20,000 20, of them on zero-hour contracts. You know, the growth of, the growth of contingent labor um, is the concomitant of actually trying to organize your cost base so that you drive the costs down all the time. Wages have fallen. A lot, a lot of OECD countries have been stagnation in wages, uh, but they've fallen furthest in the UK since 2008. Why? I humbly submit, because our ownership structures incentivize um, that to happen more than elsewhere, and our unions are weaker uh, than elsewhere to resist it. Um, and that's why that I remarked about the decline of career uh, earlier on uh, and the way in which that's manifesting itself. That is, you know, again, if you, you know, there's lots of reasons for this. You can all kind of come I'm sure you'll all come up with lots of reasons for this when we're having a glass of wine in a, minute, in a second or two. But I defy you not to include the narrative I've just told you. Um, and my argument in, uh, well, in the state we're in 20 years ago, and my argument 20 years on, um, is this is I mean, kind of essentially, look, you know, we don't, it doesn't have to be like this. The kind of legal, constitutional, cultural structures of our corporations, the way they are financed and the way they don't innovate is not God-given the result of kind of free decisions by free women and men um, in, in marketplaces about which we can do nothing. Um, actually, we can, if we choose, design things to be different. And you know, if, 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 if private institutions are producing um, poor results, which I submit they are, then in a democracy, in a democracy, and the collective will can be expressed to say, let's redesign them, let's do something different. And you're not to be told that that's anti-business in some way. I would argue that actually trying to put the company back on its feet uh, so that it can reflect the nobility and genius of a great company uh, is, a, is the most pro-business thing you can do. And actually to allow things to carry on as they are is actually anti-business because ultimately delegitimizes business because they, they cease to be wealth generators and become self-evidently kind of wealth extractors um, and create kind of all the dismay um, that, we, that we all think about it. And actually, you know, that becomes the fuel of the fire of this kind of anti-immigration, kind of anti-European, anti-foreigner, kind of anti-the-other sentiment. Because uh, if it becomes so difficult to, kind of, to, to build a life you've reason to value, given your own employment prospects, that's how you react. Human beings uh, do operate best in networks of reciprocal association. And if a member of that reciprocal network is actually creaming off or malbehaving in some way, then actually the others have to hold the malbehavior to account. It's what happens, you know, that's what happens in human societies, and democracy is our instrument for doing it. And actually, if you don't do that, then you reduce our politicians to kind of journeymen, journeywomen, who actually can't, do, they can't discuss anything that malfunctions in the private sector because the only thing that you can do as a politician is do something in the public sector, and all, that, all you can do in the public sector is to privatize it or make it look more like the, the private sector, which is obviously seen to be the best. 
But I think one can hold, one can hold the microscope up to actually what's taking place in the private sector and ask some tough questions. Do you think that what's happened to Thames Water, do you think the disappearance of ICI and GEC, do you think that the way the banks operate in the banking crisis as ownerless corporations growing their balance sheets as fast as they damn well could, um, because that led to the best remuneration for the director's teams uh, in exactly the same way that BP cut corners um, when it was drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, in a, again, to maximize the share price. Do you think that that's a good way of running British capitalism? And if you don't, do you want to change it? And if you want to change it, should you be dismissed as being anti-business? Uh, and I get very excited about it. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, I think the very first thing to do um, is to talk about the repurposing um, of British companies. And actually, one of the nice things um, that um, happened has happened to me is actually, apart from all friends um, endorsing the, uh, the book, you'll find an endorsement at the back of the book by the chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, who says, you know, Wilhelm's got a big idea which actually might um, do something about um, secular stagnation. Uh, and actually, the publishers organized it so that the, his big idea was actually excluded from the quote, which I've got rather irritated about. But anyway, um, when, we, when we get to the paperback version, the full quote will be on the back. But the big idea is the repurposing of companies. That actually, uh, that, um, the, it's not just me, but it's actually, you know, a lot of people around the place are beginning to look at what happened, even people at the top of British business, and being uneasy about what is taking place. Um, and uh, you know, I argue for um, a Companies Act, a 21st Century Companies Act, that actually, um, if you're going to incorporate as a company and you're going to trade as a company, and the whole point of doing it in kind of, kind of 30 minutes and off you go without no questions asked, uh, and all you have to do is kind of go along to a company's house and buy it off the shelf, and there you go. Um, you know, I don't, I don't recognize that as the right way to build a company. I think you have to declare your purpose. If you wanted to, and the, when we thought about companies, the companions I talked about earlier on, and the first companies originated in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, that was the deal. Um, the, the public authorities gave you a license to trade, um, which is a privilege uh, for you to make profits, and sometimes they privileged you by giving you a temporary monopoly, sometimes they privileged you in other ways. Um, and the quid pro quo was you delivered the purpose. Um, so the East India Company delivered the purpose of actually going out to the, to the Far East and kind of bringing spices back in British boats, uh, British vessels, English vessels as they were at the time. Um, that was the quid pro quo. Um, uh, and when you watch great, great companies incorporate, the Lieber Brothers incorporated in Port Sunlight in the latter half of the 19th century to make the best everyday things for everyday folk. When Boeing incorporated, they wanted to build uh, the best planes that flew further, safest, um, fastest. Uh, I'm on the Scott Trust that owns the Guardian and the Observer. Um, our purpose is to ensure the Guardian is edited as it has been heretofore. Um, uh, where you find great institutions over time, what binds them is this uh, kind of enduring purpose. That's the point of them. So I start off, let's, have, let's, actually let's get companies to incorporate around purpose. Let's actually redefine fiduciary obligations of directors as the delivery of that purpose. Let's actually, when they report, let's the, they report on the totality 
of the way they've de 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 delivered that purpose in reporting accounts that aren't just financial, that will be included, but a whole range of metrics which actually you want to judge a company on. Let's actually give those shareholders who are going to commit to companies over time more votes. Um, let's give founders of companies, if they choose, um, more, more votes. I mean, I, we all have our um, – we don't want Google um, on its, its tax evasion and avoidance isn't great. Um, but actually, as an innovative company, you have to say it's pretty damn good. Um, and when Larry Page and Serge Grin um, founded it, they had 3.5% of the equity but 37% of the shares. And they said, we want to do that because we want to make sure Google's never taken over and actually the management can think long-term and innovate. And LinkedIn's the same. Uh, Facebook's the same. Uh, a lot of companies now go to, the, to New York to kind of float because actually the founders can actually secure their company um, uh, over time from the threat of it being taken over and suborned and undermined by actually um, people who take a much more short-term financial interest than they, the founders. Why can't we do that in Britain? Why, why does it have to be one vote, one, uh, you, so that when uh, you're in a takeover, um, as Cadbury's was in, in the Kraft takeover, 30% of the equity was held within six weeks by hedge funds who had the same vote as people who had held the shares for, for years and years and years, who could settle the fate of that company. And my view is, is, that, is that we can be much tougher on takeovers we can, and we can start to think about um, the way in which ownership obligations are kind of exercised. Um, investors should actually um, submit to a, a really proper stewardship code. I mean, you, all, you all invest with insurance companies, pension funds, unit trusts, you'll have some savings. But actually the, um, the fees that are charged, the, the, ch the way equity is churned, the kind of companies that are invested in, you need to have more say in all of that. I think, by the way, that's going to start growing. I think I noticed um, around the kind of um, university world that students are starting to say, well, we know, we're quite, a, quite, a, you know, Climate change. We don't actually want our, our kind of the, the university superannuation fund to, to invest in lots of, kind of, uh, kind of companies that have lots of unburnt carbon, and they can make money by burning carbon. Uh, you know, um, similarly, with um, we want to actually see um, that actually the, the 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 assets which are held on our behalf are invested in companies whose purpose we actually respect, like, and, and, and want. And I think this, I'm speaking here to what I think is going to be a more forceful movement um, kind of in the years ahead. Um, and I think we should develop more variegated ownership templates. I mean, I think that, I mean, why, why, why can't we have a public benefit company? Why, when we privatize Royal Mail, can't we say, hmm, we don't want it to be a PLC and so it'll end up kind of in the, um, <clears throat> you know, in some offshore tax haven. Um, let's actually have it as a company where actually, you know, we'll give, it, we'll, we'll give it even more privileges because as a water company, as a television company, as a newspaper, whatever it is, we really care about this company. We're going to place obligations on it, um, which they accept, um, in return for some privileges because it's delivering a public benefit. Um, we could, um, I think, mutuals, I thought it was a disaster. I said this in the state room, the way the mutual building societies were all privatized in the, uh, in, the, in the 1990s. If it's a mutual, assets built up over a century, those were built up to be held by the kind of um, common, ordinary men and women who built the thing up 
in perpetuity for their children and their grandchildren, not flipped um, so that the current director scene can make a killing, which is what took place in the 1990s, before um, most of them actually turned out to, kind of, to be the handmaidens in the, in the subsequent financial crisis, Northern Rock uh, being a conspicuous example, um, uh, Halifax and the HBOS. I mean, these were actually part of the epicenter of the financial crisis. Um, mutuals, we want to make them permanent. And lots more thoughts, and I even think there's a case, and whisper it very softly, for public ownership. Um, so, I, mean, I've, I don't want to go, I've, I've got a few more things to say, in fact, quite a lot more things to say, and I've already spoken for 30 minutes, so I think I should want to try and bring my remarks to a, to a, a close before all of you get bored or leave. Um, but the, um, it, that's where you start, by breathing life back into, into the company sector by repurposing companies. Then you have to ensure that they are financed. Um, and, of course, they'll be financed by repurposed banks. Um, the Bank of England must use an arsenal of interventionist tools to ensure that actually um, companies get the, the loans they need. Um, for a long time, and it's been changed by Mark Carney, um, again, I mean, that's been one of the more startling things. Um, you know, 20 years ago, the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, um, Mervyn King, kind of wrote, wrote me a kind of little kind of, uh, critique um, of my ideas that actually the Bank of England had to change the way it backed the banking system, uh, had to con you know, constrain uh, the amount of lending going on property and re-divert it through the multiple tools the bank has, the way it intervenes in the money markets, etc. It's technical. I don't want to kind of go too deep in it. And I, got, I was told that couldn't, that couldn't possibly happen for reasons that it would, it would undermine banking efficiency, I was told. Twenty years later, I find Mark Carney kind of adopting almost completely the arsenal of instruments that I argued for 20 years ago in the state room. The times are changing. But having got them, they need to be used. Um, and actually, we should be told, and it should be public, and very proud of the fact this is actually happening. But it's been done, actually, by stealth. New forms of, of um, kind of intervention in the way the banks work, too, so that they can take the risks of actually lending to enterprises who are kind of moving forward in this world of intangibles that I described. Again, I mean, I, uh, a lot more to be said about that. It's in the book. I, we can discuss it over a drink. That's two of these elements. For the, the third element, to kind of the, th the third kind of, um, kind of brick to drop, uh, if you, is innovation. Um, I think that there's no future for Britain except as a smart economy. And I think we have to really set ourselves some audacious goals. Um, in a sense, we're kind of rather bewildered as a national community. We're not quite certain what the point of us is anymore. And I think we should actually be bold and set some... I mean, why can't we be the most innovative country in Europe? You know, why can't we be a magnet for scientific endeavour? You know, why can't we say that in areas like green technology or big data or um, the new materials uh, in areas like graphene, we can't meet you know, number one? Why can't, we kind of, uh, why can't we commit the resources to do that? Absolutely no reason except will. Um, and, you know, R&D, we used to be one of the big R&D spenders in Europe 35 years ago, now one of the lowest. You know, that can be reversed. Um, and I think, we, I think there's, a, there's also, we have to recognize that in this world of uh, kind of possibility, there's multiple, multiple chances of making mistakes. Um, governments can make mistakes in the kind of areas they identify for research. Companies can make mistakes. You have a, a great apostle, I'm chair of the Big Innovation Center, of the notion of open innovation. 
being porous, being permeable, being non-siloed, being iterative with working with others, being collaborative. And that's as true of the state as it is of companies. So I think the intellectual poverty regime has to be completely overhauled so we can have more sharing. Universities need to open, when they do R&D, I think they attempt by universities to make all their R&D proprietary um, and try and kind of limit the kind of attempts of young entrepreneurs, graduates, from kind of using it well. We have to rethink that, the university sector. Innovate UK, the catapults, let's actually scale it up and do it seriously. If you do that, repurpose companies, reframe finance, and commit to innovation, I think the British private sector could really take off. But that's not enough. We want a society where the mass of us flourish. And here I think that I, you need engaged citizens, educated consumers, intelligent workers. Um, we, and we don't want a kind of a, a labor market in which wages fall by the degree they're currently fallen. Now, we're not going to get anywhere in a world in which actually people have their constant their backs to the wall because wages, real wages have fallen by 8% since 2008. That's the biggest cumulative fall over a period you know, since the la last decades of the 19th century. And... You know, again, you know, we all know the, the, the ritual explanations. It's all become blah, 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 and poor education. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, we wave weakness in the skill. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's globalization. I still think globalization. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, there's technology. technology blah, blah, blah. There's another bloody reason. We weaken trade unions. Trade unions are. I mean, we all know actually when you can't when there's another damn strike and you can't move around London because you know uh, transport for London can't. Uh, there's been a tube strike or a bus strike. You know, I, like, I like the next man or woman. You know, it's fulminating. Jane will speak on my <laughs> She's heard the speech. But uh, weakening trade unions, weakening workplace voice uh, has been you know, the capacity of these managements to do what they can do uh, to workforces. Endless rounds of, kind of regrading jobs, shrinking workforces, and down freezing wages. Uh, with no workplace voice, with no counter-workplace representation. I, you know, I defy you, again, to tell the story without the weakness of trade unions. And although you know, we've had uh, Christine Lagarde, manager of the IMF, uh, we've had uh, Alan Greenspan, um, a very right-wing Republican ex-chairman uh, of the Federal Reserve, We've had uh, uh, all wringing their hands with inequality at Davos. Uh, lots of complaints from the rostrum at Davos. Uh, uh, Klaus Schwab saying inequality, the biggest menace facing the West. The OECD had a report in yesterday's Guardian, a uh, big report about the menace of inequality. You know, no one ever talks about the elephant in the room, that actually the, the uh, going for flex... We've made, we've made our flexible markets, as Vince Cable said in May, too flexible. Um, and actually, if we want a society in which we have mass flourishing, we have to think of actually who is going to represent workers as partners of purposed enterprise. Once you start talking about purposed enterprise, you can turn to, you can, you can turn to unions and say, you know, redefine yourselves, not as the confrontational strikers against you know, the dark instruments of capital, the kind of classic socialist position. Think of yourselves instead as actually co-partners, co-creators of enterprise, people who share this purpose, um, you know, people who actually want to be um, on, the, uh, on, on the boards of companies. I well remember Bullock um, and, uh, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of trade unionists in the mid-1970s on the streets campaigning against actually the, the temerity of the Labour government that wanted to put through legislation in which workers would be on the boards of companies because that was collaborationist. 
I, I lived through that. And so, you know, I, and uh, the work, the work trainers like Jack Jones and the leaders of the TUC at the time who wanted to do it, but they were the kind of, the, the kind of old left were anti, anti, anti that. And I have to say that, you know, 21st century trade unionism has to, be, has to think about how it legitimizes itself by actually thinking about how it repositions itself in relation to the enterprise. I'm, I'm a great advocate of lifelong learning. I, there's, I, all I can say is bullet points. You know, I've got, I just want to get to, I want, I want to give you an opportunity to ask me questions. But I want to, and, I, and the education system, a lot to be said about that. I, I mean, my, my big point about the education system is, is, is twofold. One, um, if there are 800,000 babies born every year in Britain, you know, it is a calamity that nearly 300,000 of them, um, even now, after the improvements that have been kind of achieved over the last 20 years, still don't get five GCSEs A to C at, uh, when, they're, when they're 16. Unbelievable waste. And I also think that the, uh, that's happening. Um, there are only, and I, I, I know I feel this quite strongly, there are 80,000 kids at 15 who are entitled to free school meals. Only 20 get to Oxford. And I simply don't believe that all 80,000 haven't got the kind of intellectual equipment um, to get to a, a premier university. I mean, the scale of inequality in our education system is just leaves you reeling. And if you ask the question, um, is, this a, is this the route to a smart economy and a smart society? Is this the route to where the massivists, uh, where the massivists are intelligent workers, educated consumers, kind of participants, uh, participative citizens? Absolutely not. Um, and that is actually the flip side of that, of course, is an education system in which 42,000 kids get three A's or better at A-level, of whom nearly 20,000 have been to private school. Um, so it's bloody hard um, for Russell Group universities, um, even if they, you know, if, if that's who you're recruiting from, it's really very difficult um, to have, you know, two-thirds of your, more than two-thirds of your entrance um, from state schools, because they simply aren't there. They're not the ones who've got the, have got the qualifications. And again, is that only, you know, why is that? Is that because, um, you know, intellectually they're incapable or because of the kind of investment that's been put in them cumulatively over, over oh, you know, from 5 to 18? Um, I mean, why, why should it be that the education budget is going to be cut in real terms by 10% so that already, you know, the difference between the amount of money spent on, you know, the kind of schools that are that the leadership of the Conservative Party went to, where, you know, it's 20000 a year in fees, and, and if they board, it's even more. Um, you know, and at the, you know, at the moment, you know, spending six, 7000 pounds a year on state school kids, that's going to go down. You know, why is that? What's the argument for that? Is that tolerable in a society in which the mass of us must flourish? Again, I get exercised by that. Um, and social contract is not only about, you know, all that, although I think those are the pivotal elements of it, I mean, I, I have a lot to say about housing, pensions, the organization of the media, as John introduced, um, but I'm, I simply haven't the time to talk about it. But my last point, um, before I kind of try to wind up, is that the, uh, or last two points before I wind up, is that, um, you know, it's obvious to you that I want public endeavor and I want public initiative um, to kind of reshape the contours of our economy and society. That means a different kind of state. We need, a, we need a makeover of the state. Um, and um, I'm not, uh, I, I don't believe and hope for Scottish independence, but I do think the Scots are doing us a great service in that they're really forcing us to think about the British constitutional settlement. 
Um, I think it's going to be impossible um, for the kinds of tax raising and tax devolved powers that Scotland have been given and will get more of not to be given um, uh, of, to um, English um, cities. Um, that's already in embryo happening in Manchester. It's already in embryo and happening in London and long overdue. I think it's going to force a reconstitution of the House of Lords so it becomes, as Gordon Brown has argued, a, a Senate of the country with these kind of devolved regions and devolved um, nations having a representation kind of in a second chamber in our parliament. Um, that, I think, is wholly, wholly beneficial. I think it will lead to something else. I think it will lead to uh, the reorganization of the Treasury. Um, I think it's a disgrace that public goods, public investment, public infrastructure, education and health, criminal justice, things that we need are... Uh, and the way we do it in Britain is that's a residual. A residual. You start off by saying we cannot ever have the ta top tax rate higher than 45% and hopefully lower. Corporation tax lower from 28 to 21%. Every 1% uh, lowering a corporation tax is 600 million lost to the exchequer at least. So, you know, corporation tax is going to be go to 20. Kind of income tax cannot be any higher than basic income tax than 20p in the pound. Now, we can't have, the, we can't have national insurance higher than 10%. Um, that then gives you your tax revenues. It can't be higher because we can't possibly tax anyone more than we're currently taxing them. We, uh, we, and we all know that the biggest thing facing our country, not, not justice, not equity, not opportunity, not capitalizing on the great technologies that are coming through, not rebuilding our capitalism, the only thing that matters, ladies and gentlemen, is lowering the deficit, as you all know. So uh, if you're going to lower the deficit... Um, so you say you want a five years tide of the deficit, you know, nil or thereabouts, and your taxes are going to be what they're going to be because you can't ever adjust them, and your economy is going to grow at 2%, you're left with the residual is public expenditure. That's, and then you say, well, we've only got this amount to spend, what are we going to spend it on? And that you end up with the kinds of, kind of shrinking of the state that we are, con that we are confronted with. And, uh, you know, and whether it is, whether, I don't know, each of one of you will have your own kind of things you cherish. I actually cherish um, infrastructure, I cherish education, I cherish health, and I also cherish the criminal justice system. What's been happening to our police force, to our courts, um, to the um, Crown Prosecution Service, to our prisons, to our probation service, again, in the last five years, you know, it's been eviscerated. And if the austerity program continues as planned, in which actually public expenditure is a residual, it'll be further eviscerated. You know, you'll end up having enormous, enormous queues to be tried. You'll have, you know, prisons bulging, no attempt at rehabilitation, kind of a Crown Prosecution Service that can win nothing because it, it's always being out, outgunned and outspent by fancy rich lawyers on the other side. You know, that is, you know, and I think, I think, I think just civilizations, you know, try to protect notions of justice at their heart, and we're not doing that. So I'm, you know, one of, the, one, of my pro, one of my programs for being how good we can be is actually um, the federalization of the country and with it um, the, dimin the, the, the diminution and recasting of the way the Treasury goes about its affairs. And I, I just want to finish up by saying this. You know, is all of this kind of impossible? None of it's impossible. I mean, it's all, it's all could be, it all could happen. These changes that I've, that I've suggested, uh, you know, they'll be knocked about in public debate. Um, some of them won't work as I hope. Some of them might work better than I hope. But actually, this direction of travel could be the direction of travel, you know, of the country. 
Um, and there is, actually, I mean, the neoliberals and on, and on the right, there is a crisis. I mean, George Osborne simultaneously talks about uh, the need for austerity and all the rest, whilst he talks about HS2, Northern Powerhouse, and actually has actually puts his name to um, some, of, some industrial policy initiatives which sound like Tony Benn in the 1960s. He's Janus Fate. He looks both ways. He hasn't got a coherent intellectual position. And actually, the right is at sixes and sevens. It actually wants um, you know, the animating element in it, you know, wants to leave the European Union to create a kind of libertarian Britain, a kind of offshore Hong Kong that can exploit the world in a kind of free market paradise in which private equity uh, traders and hedge funds uh, can actually kind of, um, kind of uh, exploit their private garden in the city and the rest of us can you know, do the best we can. You know, is that a compelling vision for the country? I think not. What's going to happen to notions of the company in that conception? Why isn't it ever discussed? And I think that actually, you know, what I try to say in the book is that there is this crisis on the right. I think it's one of the reasons why um, it's very difficult for the Conservative Party to get more than 32, 33% of the vote in this general election. Um, and it's why actually the other parties, Lib Dems, Scottish Nationals, and Labour Party, will get them overwhelming the majority of um, the vote. And the House of Commons will be hung again. And it will be hung actually as we quest for. Um, a coalition that can put this program together. Because, you know, you talk, to, you talk to the best in the SNP, you talk to the best in the Labour Party, you talk to the best in, in the Liberal Democrats. And by the way, you talk to thinking Tories, and they're all kind of in this agenda. So I want to end up with a kind of a, a mission of, a kind of a message of hope. I actually think we could end the mercenary society. We could build a great country. How good we can be. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Will. I don't think anybody could accuse you of not taking on the big issues and indeed taking, <laughs> taking, taking on a large number of them simultaneously. Um, we have um, 15, 10 to 15 minutes or so for questions. Um, I'll take you in, I think, groups of three. Um, as I do that, if you, um, there's quite a lot of us. A lot of people would like to ask questions. Um, it would be very good, given how many people are in the audience, if you asked a question rather than made a speech... Um, and if you indicated who you are and if it's relevant, um, where you come from. So uh, there's a gentleman right at the front here, and then a gentleman at the back there, and... Oh, okay. Please. Hi, uh, my name's Gordon Tate. I take out patents on very fast refueling of electric vehicles, um, and I also consider myself a bit of an expert on the history of IPR. Um, one of the things which doesn't seem to have come up this evening is the massive chasm that seems to be between the practitioner and the academic. Um, 300 years ago to this very day, I think, um, John Harrison won the prize for longitude. Um, 150 years ago, we had people like um, uh, James Watt and Thomas Newcomen who if the telephone had been around for them, they'd have had to wipe coal dust and oil off their hands to answer that phone, um, whereas now there seems to be a fear almost of getting your hands dirty. Um, and I, I think the question I'm really kind of saying is how can we put into practice what I believe 100% in what you're saying tonight, how can we actually convince the people who have a fear of the individual where 
nowadays the likes of uh, James Watt would only be allowed to design widgets for his steam engine, where 150 years ago he designed the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Take a question just at the back, and then one uh, at the back. We'll take, on take, take lots of them. We'll yeah, I'll, I'll take, I'll take, take three, and then we'll... Yeah. Uh, my name is Vincent Burke. I'm a humble civil servant for now, until the next round of redundancy. Uh, <laughs> um, you obviously have a very powerful uh, um, resume of the last 20 years and the excesses of capitalism in, in the UK. Um, for 13 years of that 20, we had a Labour government... So how culpable do you think previous Labour, Labour governments with their brown, Blair, prawn cocktail offensive towards the city uh, are? And uh, how confident do you think any future Labour government will be in a position to make those changes, whichever of the Millibans, if ever, any of them, ever makes it to down the street? And gentleman right at the back. Hi, I'm John Dean. I'm a sociology lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University. You used quite optimistic evidence from London and from uh, Oxford and Cambridge at the start of your presentation. I was wondering what future you see for Rill and Clacton and Merthyr Tidville and <laughs> Dudley in this sort of analysis that outside of the cosmopolitan city. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Look, I'll be very quick because I have lots more to ask questions. I mean, I, um, um, uh, I'm... Um, I often kind of say that it's a bit like lighting a fire, really. I, I do think that, um, you know, that the... Uh, and you're right, you know, the M25 area. And actually, in fairness, you know, uh, parts of Sheffield and Leeds and parts of Manchester, you know, you can be quite... You can, be, you can, you can really tell quite an optimistic story. Edinburgh, too. Cardiff, as well. Um, but you're quite right, you know. Clacton? Uh, yeah. I mean, Britain's seaside towns and the coastal... You know, what's happening on the coast is really... Uh, dramatic, um, and there's you know um, parts of uh, the Midlands uh, and actually both sides of the Pennines, the smaller towns, which are going to be unbelievably desolate, and it's uh, it's very hard to, you know, you you. All I can say is that um, you just have to hope you can get something going in our large conurbations, which backfeed into these areas. Um, um, but I'm. Um, I, I don't have a better answer, and I, I know, but those geographical inequalities are really—I don't know what your own answer would be. Um, but I mean, I—I um, I mean, of course, you know, the um, UK, I mean, that, that ward in Clacton, um, which had this kind of huge majority um, for um, uh, Douglas Carswell, in, you know, which had this—you know—the most deprived part of Britain. Um, and you thought, well, you know, what could you come up with to make it less deprived? Um, I mean, you could certainly. I mean, I think there's uh, the. I do think that forms of that there are forms of cooperative forms of mutual. Um, uh, there's um, in the book I argue for uh, that quite aggressively, um, and actually that might be a way of actually dealing these parts of the country kind of into um, uh, prosperities elsewhere. Um, but you know, uh, it's it's a it's a drama. Um, I'm not, not, not a good answer. Best I can best I can come up with. And thank you for the question. Um, uh, Labour, new Labour. Um, look, I mean, I I um, I mean, I've I've I mean, both Ed Miliband. Uh, well, Ed Miliband has certainly read the book. Um, Ed Balls knows its content. Um, 
Uh, well, he's, he's asked me to give him it tomorrow, so I will. Um, uh, um, when I gave it to David Miliband, David Miliband, um, with some trepidation, because um, I thought, well, he, he, he re- immediately acknowledged that actually New Labour should have done more to repurpose the private sector, and it was a, it was a big, it was a mistake. Um, and um, they did make efforts. One of the troubles is, is that you know, you've got to remember what it was like in the late 1990s, early 2000s. I mean, this was um, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. Um, Bill Clinton had just abolished Glass-Steagall. Um, you know, the financial system was running amok, as we now know. But you know, um, the trick to pull seemed to be, you know, let's kind of milk this golden goose for the tax revenue and spend it on kind of... Um, public and social good. And actually, John has mapped um, uh, in his work, and he can speak to this, but I mean, between 97 and 2010, you know, on the public expenditure side, Labour actually did deliver um, a lot of public good. I mean, whether it was Sure Start, whether it was education, whether it was health. I mean, I don't know whether, John, whether you, I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, it wasn't bad anyway. Um, um, and that sh- is a sharp contrast to what's happened since. Um, but you're, uh, and who do I, I mean, I'm, um, I sometimes also want to say this, is that um, uh, politicians actually respond to what comes up from below. Um, you know, it's very difficult for, you know, an Ed Miller, for the two Eds to kind of, you know, pick this up and run with it um, if there's not a big popular demand from below. I sometimes quote my father, um, who was one of the team um, after in between kind of May uh, and July 1945, whose job was to educate the troops um, about what the manifestos were, the three major parties, in right to the 45 election. And Dad used to say, you know, you've got out of the truck, you know, with a loud hailer in front of a couple of thousand um, soldiers about to be demobbed. And no one wanted to hear about what the Conservative Party manifesto was. No one wanted to hear what the... They didn't want to hear about a programme for change. The Labour government 1945 wasn't delivered by a kind of cabinet of people who were inspired leaders. It was reflecting a roar from below. And, you know, where's the roar from below about the operation of contemporary capitalism and the demand, the unstoppable demand for change that actually you need? Um, and you know, the, where are the where are the where's the critical mass of intellectuals? What are the uni- where's the people in the universities? You know, where are the social forces? that actually you know, demand that things should be different. So I think that there's, you know, yes, you know, these men, you know, temporized. Yes, you know, Blair in particular actually was seduced by, we all know the story. Um, uh, they should have done much more than they did. Um, some of the things they did, as I describe in the book, um, you know, were craven. Um, uh, but, the, but the forces that would hold them to account for doing better were very weak. So I'm, you know, yes, you know, I'm prepared to kind of, um, you know, I will jacuzzi, uh, but I'll, you know, I'll also recognize, you know, that the, the moat in, you know, a wider eye than just their failures. And on this very good point about, you know, um, you know, kind of, um, you could design it, um, you know, I, I, about, about the way in which actually, look, I just have to say that um, it's, it's, you know, that there's no one person who could design the whole of an iPhone. Um, 
it, it is teams that do these things in 2015. Um, it doesn't mean that there can't be a unifying vision or a unifying purpose. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that um, the by repurposing companies, you might get more of that, of that, of that vision and, and, uni, and unity of purpose around which you can build a team in which you know, um, not one but, ten, but dozens of people can work to a common end. Um, and I think that, the, that you know, our structure should you know, try to drive to the, what you're describing, but I think you have to do it in a different way from doing it um, in 1785 with James Watt. Thank you very much. I'm going to take one more round of questions. There was somebody at the front here. I'll try to be very brief, actually. Yeah. Yes. And, and there's going to be one at the, at the top up here, please. Yeah. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Um, from Margaret Thatcher onwards, every government has sold off uh, major assets. Uh, people too long can't believe that everything, you know, transport, energy, water, everything has been sold off, even the mail. Um, is this because of that? the need to, to, to pay bills during the past 35 years, or is it because of a lack of faith in British management? Um, as an example, I, I put forward the, the British motor industry, which was, was comatose and, and then sold off to the Germans and the Japanese uh, and, and the Indians, and is now uh, prospering. Good question. Yep. Um, I wondered whether or not you'd be interested in uh, renationalization. And so you um, where, where are you from? I'm over here. <laughs> Cuckoo. Oh, hi. <laughs> hi. Hello. There's a whole audience. <laughs> and I, I wondered, I know you haven't spoken about this, but I wondered whether or not you'd be in, um, you'd like to have or to see the age of voting lowered to 16. Oh, goodness. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, 16. Um, Two questions there, and there were two people who were catching my, my eye in the middle here um, earlier. We'll take those, and I think we may then okay. stop. But there are two just coming here. And then after that, if you could pass the microphone behind you, and then we'll take those. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think okay. we probably um, will have to stop after that. Okay, all right. Peter Rukin. Um Well, you would know quite a lot about Germany. I'm struck by the difference in attitudes in Germany and here, both to levels of inequality and to things like tax evasion. The huge public furore across the entire political spectrum in Germany when early Hernes, the hero, was caught tax avoiding, yeah. whereas in, uh, in the UK, one out of 1,100 get prosecuted. And I'm also struck by the extent to which private sector behaviour, such as PRP, has certain um, performance rate of pay, has penetrated the mentality of the public sector. As the sort of former head of the sort of um, um, high wage uh, commission, what can we do to shift views on inequality? Three great questions. I'll be very and quick. Can, and just one more, fourth I think. Fourth, yeah. And I'll give no, no. I think four, and we'll, four, and then we'll we'll stop because people can carry on in the reception afterwards. Well, okay, very good. Uh, David Harris, uh, 
uh, just a, an interested citizen. Uh, thank you ever so much for that, both for your ideas and the passion with which you expressed them. But there was, for me, a big gap in, uh, in, in, in what you said, Mr. Harton, which was that for, for many of us, the bigger issue is, uh, the main issue is not, uh, not neither reducing the deficit nor increasing public spending, but the catastrophe of, uh, uh, of global warming. And isn't it the failure of, uh, of the European left to have failed to engage with those environmental issues that has seen uh, a, 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 an abdication from political involvement of the under-35 voter um, and the handing over of all of that issue to the conspiracy theorists and utopian ruralists? Utopian ruralist, I like that actually. <laughs> Just invented it. Is there a fifth question? I mean, I, anyone burning for one? There's a burning, burning. There's someone burning for a question. One just here, yeah. and then. Yeah, I'll be very quick. Uh, yes, incredibly quick. Uh, Ed Rennie, Res Publica. Um, you mentioned the head of EDF Energy. Um, you, you, you didn't mention in this um, hotbed of atheism that is LSE that he's a devout Catholic. And my very quick question is, um, don't we find an ally in Catholic social teaching, partly because it doesn't require any actual religious belief, but it'll be a good tool in kind of taking on the religious right, uh, particularly in America, who support some of the things that uh, you are so intractably and rightly opposed to? That's a very interesting question, too. I mean, I do think... Uh, um, I'm very struck, actually, by uh, this... Um, uh, that actually there are, there are kind of two traditions, not just the Catholic social tradition, but actually the Quaker tradition. Um, you know, I, I uh, um, you know, the, um, you know, this film I'm making for Channel 4, uh, profiling, you know, the water industry and comparing Thames water with um, Welsh water, which is a cooperative. And it turns out that the, uh, the guy who kind of had the idea of not making himself very rich, actually, which he could have done by buying... Um, Welsh water with a mate and, getting, and flipping it and he actually had built it to be a kind of a mutual to benefit one and a half million water consumers you know he's married to a devout Quaker uh, I, you know why has Cadbury's developed a distinctive kind of form of capitalism it's Quaker uh, I talked to Matthew Jenkins at Barclays and uh, you know he wants to I know it sounds far-fetched but he actually you know he thinks that actually ultimately you know he wants a, he wants a bank you can trust back to its Quaker roots and you're right, you know, you, 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 um, uh, I think that Catholic social doctrine, um, uh, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm, 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 I'm not a Catholic, um, but I mean, I, uh, you know, <laughs> when I was asked by the, um, the previous Pope to do a bit of work on a, uh, um, uh, uh, when he was one of the papal encyclicals on work, um, you know, I said, I'd, uh, I was very struck by, you know, um, talking in these terms to the businessmen who were there, um, that actually they all get it. Um, and someone like Vincent de Riva, you know, um, who's read these um, papal encyclicals, yes, you know, he calls his deal. He's done a deal with 25,000 workers um, in uh, Hinckley, and he calls it a social covenant and deliberately names it from that, that tradition. And so, yes, you know, I mean, I find, you know, um, I look for allies where I can find them, and you're right, you know. Um, the kind of the kind of the kind of um, the kind of the best elements of contemporary capitalism 
often you find that the, uh, when you scratch a bit, that the leader um, or the purpose around which the enterprise has been organised does have, um, you know, has had um, um, r- roots in um, a kind of moral, a moral framework which has, you know, a, re- a religious base, yeah. So I'm going to I, I accept that. I think it's very interesting and I, you know, it's something I want to reflect on. Um, so, you know, thank you for the question. Um, on the global warming, of course, look, you can't... But my point about this is on global warming is that if you want to get companies to kind of take um, this... And, and I think, you, you know, that you can do a lot... Obviously, you know, it's a, it's, a com- it's a government initiative. It has to be. But also you want companies to take it seriously too. It is purposed companies that actually... And, the fr- and you know, the framework of reporting that I'm requiring or invite, I think should be required that will give... Um, climate change campaigners and people interested in sustainability some kind of purchase that they don't currently have on the dynamic of, t- of contemporary capitalism. I don't think, I don't think you're going to... We won't make much progress um, in, in kind of really persuading people to put... To, to be kind of solve these... To help solve these challenges unless they're purposed. So, uh, you know, my invitation is, you know, in a world in which you have to incorporate around a business purpose... And, you're, and that's your fiduciary obligation. You know, you can build into that purpose sustainability, um, and you can make some progress on that on that front. That's what I. So there's lots more to say to you on that. Um, on this question of voting at 16, I mean, I'm, um, I, I, yeah, I, I actually, um, I, I, um, there's an awful lot of things that I worry about, and that's one of the things I don't worry about very much. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> Um, you know, I just haven't got the bandwidth, really. I mean, I... Part of your audience might disagree. Or kind of... Um, what's that? Part of your audience might disagree. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I... Of course, I mean, I, you know, I've been 16 too without a vote. Um, I mean, I... Um, I, I, I one, the, the good thing would be that it would... Um, that it would... Uh, that I think that um, you know, if you're at the labour market at 16, why can't you vote? Uh, if you can... If you, if you can... Uh, um, but I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, the, the counter argument, of course, is that is that um, you know, I, you know, adult, the you know, is that there is a that actually, to what extent um, can someone who's 16 be a you know a kind of engaged citizen? I mean, and I, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm, if if. Uh, and I'm, I would I would sit this out, watch the argument, and actually I would go with a majority view on this. So I'm not, but I'm not, uh, you, know, um, you know, I've got a lot of things, I and mean, I'm, I'm I'm out there enough, you know, on uh, stuff on the, on all the stuff that I talked about tonight, without adding the campaign for 16-year-old votes as a, another another bloody thing to be kind of shot down for, you know. Um, so I try and keep my political power to dry. But if if you make a case and convince me, I'm with you, you know. But you can take the lead, and I'll follow. Um, uh, and I, I, on Germany and inequality, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I, I got, I got, when I wrote the state we're in, with my admiration for uh, um, uh, the German economy uh, and German society, I was much mocked, you know, because I, kind of, I actually thought that I actually thought that Germany could have, might be a stronger and more powerful economy than 
than Britain in the year 2010, and there was a kind of avalanche of kind of right-wing commentators kind of queued up to kind of mock me um, for this view that actually I was, uh, how can I possibly think that with their sclerotic labour-labour markets and their sclerotic forms of corporate governance and their high taxation, you know. It was obvious that fleet-footed um, Britain, with its low tax, kind of lightly regulated kind of, uh, uh, and its commitment to the industry of the future financial services was going to kind of leave poor Germany behind. Well, you know, um, uh, again, I mean, I'm, um, uh, and I think that, I mean, I do think that, I think that I went around the, I went around Ian McGregor's, Neil, Neil McGregor's Germany exhibition at the British Museum, which has been um, over now. But it's very striking, you know, how the kind of, you know, they've gone through these world wars, this, this kind of unfathomable, unthinkable thing of the Holocaust, you know, which is just, you know, you can't exp- they can't explain that to themselves, so that their own people could have done something like that. And, uh, you know, it does create a kind of, it, it does create a, a much more kind of modest culture, I think, um, and uh, um, very difficult to get Germans to assume a leadership role as a result. Um, uh, Maybe some of the reverses that we're going through um, uh, is going to lead to some fundamental questioning about, you know, um, values that we take for um, granted. Um, maybe, maybe a bit of failure uh, would actually help the British um, start thinking harder about their own economic and social order and the indifference that we have, um, or comparative indifference to inequality. And I'm not certain, by the way, that we are that uh, indifferent to inequality. I think that, you know... I think people have a very deeply rented sense of fairness, and I think that the uh, I think that the kind of the kind of disproportionate rewards at the top, and the way in which a kind of it's not so much a, a, um, the top we talk about the top 0.1 percent, but it's a kind of caste that's developing. And uh, you know this is a democracy, and it's a fair-minded democracy with a deep sense of fairness, and I think the emergence of a kind of caste. Um, large parts of London being uninhabitable um, by ordinary men and women because it's just so expensive. Um, I don't think it's going to wash, actually. So don't despair of your countrymen. It may, uh, you know, inequality, I think, is becoming a more serious issue here, too. I think it's about to metastasize into a, into a real cancer. I don't think people, and the young people here can talk to me afterwards, but I think that, you know, it, I think it's intolerable where you have people kind of digging down four or five stories underground for kind of, you know, underground car parks and cinemas where it can literally go 800 yards away. There's kind of four, five, six young people crowding into some kind of ghastly kind of flat, you know, where they, you know, uh, rotating through, like hutching, as it's called, you know. Um, and this kind, of, this kind of lived inequality, so, kind of, so, pro, so cheap by jowl in a city like London, is not actually tolerable. It's not sustainable. And lastly, your point about the, about the car industry. Look, I want to, this is my big point. You know, this is my big point. Um, you know, Tata's done jolly well buying um, um, uh, uh, Jaguar Land Rover. Um, um, the, uh, the Japanese have done very well. BMW bought the mini plant in, uh, in Oxford and have made it one of the most productive kind of plants in their portfolio. It's not as though, you know, what's... Now, you know, there's two views about this. One is because they're foreign and they're better than us. I don't buy that. I mean, they're just people who've got ownership right. You know, PMW is family-owned. It's con- the majority of it's family-owned. It takes a 50-year view, you know. Tatar's family-owned. 
know, the, you know, the Japanese companies, I mean, there are, you know, there are more people coming forward for apprenticeships for Nissan in the Northeast, picking up the chat from Sheffield Hallam. You know, it's easier to get a place, you know, the 700 folk apply for the 120 places at, at Hartford College, Oxford. You know, there's, there's 20,000 people applying for the 200 apprenticeships that Nissan offer in the Northeast. You know, how can it be that, um, uh, uh, what's going on there? You know, and I just say, these companies are well-owned. Um, they do ownership seriously, they take a view, they innovate, they invest, and they're good places to work. And actually, you know, um, they, uh, what's wrong is not us or our unions or our skills and all the usual things that are, you know, what's wrong is that, we, that we've allowed the idea of the company to degrade and nobody talks about it and I've tried to talk about it tonight. And I hope you've, some of you are partly convinced. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.